I speak to you in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. Over the past seven or eight years, I've made retreat taking a semi-regular practice of mine, usually visiting a monastery in Cambridge, Mass, across the river from Boston. Like a lot of monasteries, this one has become a destination for anyone in need of a little time set apart. Perhaps they've gone through a transition of some kind, and they feel lost in the mix. Maybe there's a question the person is wrestling with, or there's been some profound experience of loss, and they need some time to sit with that. Could be that in an increasingly digitized age, that some folks just want a little break from their phone and their email and all that buzzes and rings and notifies us in these days. Sounds nice, right? Or possibly, possibly some people just want some time for prayer and stillness and a retreat helps them do that. Anyways, the point is there are lots of reasons to take a retreat, to want a little time set apart. And there are lots of people who take them, some who are ordained and many who are not. But whether a retreat sounds interesting to you or whether you're crystal clear that you'll never ever take one, I want to share a story from the first retreat I ever took because whether it's a retreat, or a vacation, or a good friend's wedding, one thing that's true whenever any of us want to get away is that seeking a little time that is set apart is often easier said than done. Yes, if anything, time that is fully and truly set apart is increasingly difficult to come by. Remembering the scene clearly, it was a languid day in June when I first arrived for my first retreat at that same monastery across the river from Boston. My belongings in hand, I pushed through a faded red gate into a garden lush with green grass and leafy trees. The ivy-covered walls that separate the monastery from the rest of the world serve not so much as a barrier, but a signal to those who enter that they are in a different place now, one of prayer, quiet rest, stillness, and intention, an intention to point people to God. Early into that first day at the monastery, a brother met me for conversation after lunch. He wore a bright smile in stark contrast to the black robe that billowed below it. 
While I didn't know exactly what to use it for, I requested some time be carved out of my stay for spiritual direction with one of the monks. At the very least, I figured any spiritual advice or guidance would be helpful, and I was all ears to hear it. But after arriving for the session, and then exchanging a few brief back-and-forth pleasantries, no further words came from the brother sitting across from me. We just continued to sit in silence. All the while, I kept waiting for him to say something. I kept waiting for him to recite a profound nugget of wisdom or present a question that would unearth some deeper meaning to my life. But none came. The monk just sat there, smiling back at me, like a well-behaved golden retriever in a black habit. To be honest, it felt like a bad first date, one that made you want to ask for the check before the appetizers ever get to the table. I asked the brother question after question, but each one dead-ended in a short reply, an even more uncomfortable, unsettling silence. So finally, unable to stand it any longer, I just started talking. I began to channel feelings with whom I'd been estranged since my trip began. Worries of emails left unanswered and projects put on pause crescendoed into a much louder chorus, calling me back to a place I did not want to be, a place of worry and fear. In short, a scarcity mindset took over, and all I could see was the scary and the unknown in an otherwise happy, luck-filled life. But eventually, slowly, my anxiety settled down, and the silence patiently crept back into the tiny room we shared. Meeting the monk's face again, his smile still very much intact, I had a thought that I still try very hard to hold on to. I said, you know, before I arrived, I was so grateful to come here, and I don't know what just happened, but it occurs to me in this moment that it is exceptionally difficult to be both stressed and grateful at the same time. Hearing this, the brother's smile then grew, and the end of the hour was finally met with a new emotion from both of us. Laughter, knowing laughter, followed by an affirming response. Yes, yes it is, he said. Today's gospel passage from John gifts us with a story that is rich and layered and beautiful but shot through it all is a message about what it means to truly see. At the top of the scene, we are told Jesus encounters a blind man. But before Jesus can even talk to him, his disciples start peppering him with questions about the man's condition. 
They say things like, who sinned, Jesus? This blind man or his parents? Surely someone in this family system must have screwed up to cause him to lose his sight. But Jesus rejects this line of inquiry entirely. He says, you're asking the wrong questions and looking for someone to blame when you don't need to. So why don't you stop looking for a scapegoat and instead look at God? Look at me, Jesus says. I am the light of the world. I illumine, I shine, I radiate, I beam. I make it possible for you to truly see. And then immediately right on the heels of these words, Jesus spits in the dirt and makes a mud, a healing paste that he then spreads across the blind man's eyes before telling him to wash in the pool of Siloam, a pool with a name, a name that means sent. And of course he did. The man went and washed and emerged from the water, now able to see. Now, if you've been following closely, what happens next in this saga is the part where, in my opinion, the story really finds its wings. Hip to the news of what has just unfolded, the town where all this happens is a buzz. The gossip is lighting up. Can it be, says one person. Is it true, says another. Is this man who was once born blind now able to see? Well, as you can imagine, not everyone is pleased with this development, for it has long been said that no good deed goes unpunished. Suspicious of the circumstances, the folks who initially hear the formerly blind man's testimony march him to the religious authorities, where he is grilled on all that has come to pass. A lengthy, heated exchange unfolds. The man's parents are even called in but he just keeps telling them the same story, which they refuse to see. He just keeps pointing to God as evidence of his sight. But no matter how many times he says it, the religious authorities seem forever unmoved. Reaching a stalemate, they eventually cast the man out, hurling an insult at him as they do. Here's one way that insult has been translated. You're nothing but dirt. How dare you take that tone with us? You're nothing but dirt, they said. If there's one message we should hear in Lent, in the wilderness, in any season of struggle or strife, it's the message of this story right here. God uses dirt to heal, to bring clarity, and God uses a blind man to show humanity what it means to see. The way of Jesus is not the way of this world. It's paradoxical. It makes no sense, seemingly. But it also makes no sense for a cross, for an instrument of death to be the gateway to eternal life. Yes, it makes no sense at all, but when they hung the savior of the world on that dry piece of wood, they had no idea 
it was the tree of life. They had no idea at all. You're nothing but dirt. That's the slur the religious authorities threw at the man born blind. You're nothing but dirt, they said. You know what? I hope he replied, thank you, when they said that. I hope thank you is the response the man volleyed right back. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Because what an unending gift it is to be dirt. Yes, what an unending gift it is to be clay, molded in the hands of God. In fact, just look outside. Maybe you haven't noticed. Dirt is where life happens. Dirt is where living things grow. Reflecting on this passage, I have a question for all of us this morning. The thing I'm taking away and wondering about in light of John 9. What's the dirt in your story? What's the mud? What is the seemingly ordinary thing that you are walking right over that God is ready to use to help you, to help all of us see? At the end of the story I began with, the conversation ended with a moment of revelation gifted to me by the monk's silence, by the brother's loving, though mostly wordless, presence. It took me pretty much the whole session with him to get there, but just before the close of the hour, it finally occurred to me just how exceptionally difficult it is to be both stressed and grateful at the same time. What's the dirt in my story? What's the mud? What's the seemingly ordinary thing that I am walking right over that God is ready to use to help me see? For me, for me, the answer to that question is gratitude. Gratitude, that's it. That's the dirt, that's the mud. Gratitude is the seemingly ordinary thing that I am walking right over that God always uses to help me see. Gosh, it can be so easy. It can be so easy to let worry rule the day, to slip into a scarcity mindset, to find ourselves in an anxiety spiral where all that is frightening and unknown snatches joy and wonder from the beauty of the present. Be it that retreat you plan to take, or that vacation, or that weekend off for a good friend's wedding. Or maybe it's just dinner, or everyday shared time with the people you love. Yeah, but what if things go wrong, those voices often say. Don't you see? We have to build a contingency plan for every scenario where things don't work out. I can't really speak for God, but I imagine God might disagree. In fact, I imagine God might want more for you than an endless spiral into the frightening and unknown. After all, there's a reason, do not be afraid, 
is one of the most common admonitions in the Bible, probably because it's one of the most common assurances we need repeated that we need to hear and hear again. Yes, yes, it can be so easy to let worry and fear rule the day, but I really think gratitude can help. I think it can be the dirt, the mud, the seemingly ordinary thing that God uses to help us see. In a poem I've long loved, Carrie Newcomer, a devout Quaker and folk singer, sketches a scene of a practice she repeats, she returns to each night before going to bed. A time of day when such spirals and voices are often known to visit. She says, Every night before I go to sleep, I say out loud three things that I'm grateful for. All the significant, insignificant, extraordinary, ordinary stuff of my life. It's a small practice and humble, and yet I find I sleep better holding what lightens and softens my life ever so briefly at the end of the day. Sunlight and blueberries, good dogs and wool socks, a fine rain, a good friend, fresh basil and wild fox, my father's good health, my daughter's new job, the song that always makes me cry, always at the same part, no matter how many times I hear it. She continues, more often than not, after three things, I get on a roll, and I just keep on going. I keep naming and listing until I lie grinning, blankets pulled up to my chin, awash with wonder at the sweetness of it all. Awash with wonder at the sweetness of it all. Yes, yes, it can be so easy to let worry and fear rule the day, but I really do think gratitude can help. I think it's the dirt, the mud, the seemingly ordinary thing we are all walking right over that God uses to help us see. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.